Father, we thank you for the truths that we are able to sing this morning. That you are forever faithful. That you love us to the very end. We thank you, Father, that in the quietness of our hearts and our minds, we can commune with you. We can be assured that you are there, that you care, that you're involved, that you love, that you comfort, that you encourage, that you strengthen and sustain. God, some of us will gather together today in great need of rejuvenation. Others come filled with thanksgiving for all that you've done in their lives. There may even be some who are here today or who will hear at some point in the future who are distant from you, who have kept you at arm's length, who have been unwilling to completely and fully let you in. Father, whatever our spiritual condition this morning, we pray that you would speak to our hearts and that we would hear you. We pray that not only would you convict us of our sin, but you would remind us of the unquenchable grace that is ours through Christ. Father, as we recognize who you are, as we give thanks for what it is you've done for us through Christ, I pray that you would motivate our hearts, that we would be more compelled to trust you and to willingly follow you, to let go of substitutes and earthly worthless things that crowd out our lives, that constantly tug at us for our affection. I pray that you give us greater clarity at what really is most important. I pray that you'll use our teaching time and our gathering as a whole today to drill more deeply into our hearts, our understanding of the greatness of the God that you are, of the depth of our need for you, of the complete way with which you love us and the untold ways in which you have chosen and designed to use us in building up your kingdom. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that it is authoritative. We thank you that it is authoritative even over those who would reject it. We pray that it would speak to our hearts even now, that we would be ready to receive and excited to learn and willing to follow whatever it is you tell us to do. So we consecrate ourselves for your glory, for your honor during our time together today and pray that you would be pleased with our heart's response to whatever it is you lead us to do to the work of your spirit who indwells us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be seated, if you will, and open your Bibles with me to John chapter 20. We continue to look at the account of the resurrection as recorded in the Gospel of John. And as we have looked at last week, the disciples had experienced the horror of the cross, never really understanding that this was what Jesus was sent into the world to do. They watched helplessly as he was tried and beaten and then eventually led through the streets and ultimately nailed to the cross on Calvary. All along the way, Jesus was silent. He kept quiet. He endured the punishment of these sinful men, knowing that this was God's preordained plan for him, knowing that it was through this act that our atonement, our propitiation, his sacrifice would make available to us the cleansing 
and the forgiveness that we need in order to stand before a holy and a righteous God. After they struggled through the Passover day and that evening, thinking about Jesus' death and why it had to be this way and what it was they had actually seen with their own eyes, on Sunday morning they traveled to the tomb only to find the stone rolled away, the tomb to be empty, and things just got worse. As difficult as it was to understand the gravity of the cross, to return and to see the tomb empty made it exponentially worse in our minds. Where was he? What happened to him? What next? And so as we learn from this, that Jesus was raised by the power of the Father in order to accomplish our atonement, to provide victory over sin and death, the women began to experience the testimony of the angels and what was taking place in all reality, apart from what they could and they could not see. The disciples have come and seen the empty tomb. There's great concern over what has happened to him. And so as we contemplate the empty tomb, and I mentioned this last week, and I want to talk about it in a little bit more detail today, but there are four major theories that are incorrect that relate to the disappearance of Jesus. The first incorrect theory about the resurrection of Jesus is what's called the swoon theory. This actually was introduced in the 17th and 18th centuries, and the basics of what it taught was this. Jesus was not actually dead, but he was in great shock. He was in a semi-coma state, and that he hung on the cross not feigning death, but looking like he was dead. And when they took him down from the cross and they put him in the cool tomb and they treated him with olive and with spices and wrapped him in the linen burial clothing, that his bodily actually revived and he came back to life. Excuse me, he, he re- rejuvenated himself. He was not actually dead. And somehow he managed to escape out of the tomb. Well, the theory fails to take into account that the same Roman guards who were experts in crucifixion were also expert soldiers who were more than capable of guarding the tomb of an individual who was thought to be dead. These same Roman soldiers, when they evaluated Jesus' physical condition on the cross, determined that he was in fact dead. They did not need to break his legs to bring about death more quickly. And in fact, to prove that he was dead, they stabbed him in the side and blood and water flowed. By all accounts, Jesus was in fact dead. This swoon theory also fails to explain how Jesus' medical condition, where he was barely alive, beaten to within an inch of his death, how could he survive in this tomb without food or water or any medical condition, after this incredibly brutal beating, having been nailed to the cross through his hands and through his feet, how could he then free himself from the enormous weight of the stone that sealed his tomb and then overpower the Roman guards who were charged with keeping watch over the tomb? How could Jesus physically accomplish such a thing? 
I think that's even more possible to contemplate than the reality that God the Father raised him from the dead because God is infinite in his power and is able to do far more than we could even begin to imagine. How could Jesus in this half-dead physical condition go on then, as recorded in the Gospels, and persuade his disciples that he was the conqueror over death and the grave. All that Jesus had gone through on Friday afternoon with the scourging, the piercing of his brow with the crown of thorns, being nailed to the cross through his hands and his feet, how could he stagger into the presence of the disciples and say, I have won the victory? They would look at him and say, oh my gosh, you look horrible. He would be stained in blood. He would still have gaping and seeping wounds. It's impossible for us to contemplate with any sense of realism that Jesus wasn't in fact dead and somehow was rejuvenated in the coolness of the tomb through the spices and the oils that were applied to him. So the swoon theory is a ridiculous attempt to deny the supernatural that God had in fact raised Jesus from the dead. Number two is they went to the wrong tomb theory. (laughs) Believe it or not, this has a lot of merit within some of the skeptical circles that discuss these kinds of things. Mark records that the women were present at his burial, and it wouldn't be impossible to think that some of the disciples also were were attending that burial. So that would mean that Peter and John, the women, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus would have forgotten which tomb Jesus was placed in, as well as the Roman, excuse me, as, as well as the religious leaders who would assign Roman guards to protect the tomb. All of them forgot which tomb Jesus was actually placed in. Now, I've been to some big cemeteries, and I've been to the cemetery where my mother was buried, and I go through a gate and I go, holy cow, I don't have any idea where her headstone might be. But I can promise you this, if I was there on a Friday evening and came back on a Sunday afternoon or Sunday morning, I'd be able to walk right to it. Well, this wasn't a massive cemetery like we might be accustomed to, and it would be unthinkable that none of these individuals would remember precisely where Jesus was actually entombed. If they had all gone to the wrong tomb, then why didn't someone take them to the correct tomb, and prove that Jesus was in fact dead. The wrong tomb theory is a ridiculous attempt to deny the supernatural. The third false theory about the resurrection is the common criminal grave theory. And this is the belief that Jesus wasn't in fact placed into the tomb, hewn out of a rock that belonged to Joseph of Arimathea, but he was instead thrown into a common tomb that criminals would be tossed into because there was no suitable place to bury them. Well, this is not only a contradictory account to everything that is recorded in each of the Gospels, but if in fact Jesus was thrown into a common criminal gravesite, then why didn't they just go to that location and prove that there he is right there, 
He's still dead. He's not alive. Again, a ridiculous attempt to disprove the supernatural. The fourth and final theory is the disciples stole the body theory. Now, this theory is the oldest of the four, and if you've read the Gospel accounts, then you know where this originates from. The religious leaders had made up the story that the disciples came and stole the body when the Roman guards reported to them that Jesus, in fact, was no longer in the tomb. Matthew records this for us in Matthew 28, 11-15. Now, while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. So remember, there was an earthquake and the stone rolled away. And the guards were like dead men, and an angel appeared on top of the grave stone that had sealed the tomb in. And so they had reported everything that had happened to the religious leaders. And so here is the the recording of a bribe. And so verses 13 through 15, And they said to them, You are to say, His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. So again, the question comes back to how could these apostles, who were all for the most part fishermen, overpower the sleeping guards or to quietly and almost silently remove this massive gravestone out of the way and then take Jesus' body out. What the religious leaders have actually done by bribing the Roman soldiers is they've actually affirmed that Jesus was not in the tomb, that the tomb is not empty, and that nothing explainable has happened to him other than the fact that God has raised him from the dead. And so just like many of the other miracles that we've looked at, in the Gospel of John, the religious leaders had no way of explaining the miracle. They didn't deny the miracle. They just rejected its significance. And this is another example of how they have actually done that. So in the Gospel accounts, after the... Discovery of the empty tomb, Jesus makes ten recorded appearances over 40 days, which in fact proves his literal, physical, actual resurrection. It's worth noting that when Jesus appears in these ten times, there is no dried blood, there is no unhealed wounds. In fact, when he appears to Thomas later in the chapter, He simply says, see the scars. What does that indicate? It indicates that the wound has healed up. Impossible for that to heal up in just two and a half days. Earlier this year, I went to Mary's house and I helped her with a little project. And it's it's irrelevant what exactly I did. But in that little project I did, I skinned my ankle... And it's been about six months, and I still have a mark on my ankle, and it's obvious that something happened there, right? Have you ever had a cut? 
You ever had some kind of injury to yourself and you look at that days and maybe even weeks later and it's still not all the way healed? There might be a semblance of a scab. Well, in Jesus' appearance, there isn't any such thing. There is only the sign of a completely healed scar. So, John chooses to record four of these ten appearances over a period of 40 days. Three actually take place here in John chapter 20. And then the fourth one that he records is going to be in John chapter 21. So let's read together John 20, verses 11 through 18. I intended to get all the way to verse 31 this morning, but there's just too much information there. So these are going to be two separate messages. So let's read together beginning in verse 11. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, and so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw, the, she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. So in this portion of our message today, there's just a single point of our outline, and this is a continuation of last week. And so number four in the outline is this, Jesus appears. In our previous passage, they discover the empty tomb, but Jesus has not yet announced his resurrected body to anybody yet. So here we find the continuation of the resurrection and the fact that Jesus appears, number one, first to Mary. We learn from the passage as we get down to verse 18 that this isn't just an anonymous Mary, but this is in fact Mary Magdalene. Verse 11a, that Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. Now remember in verse 10, after Mary Magdalene had gone to the tomb, apparently ahead of the other women, and saw that it was empty, and apparently did not go in to discover the angels who were there, ran back to report to the disciples that the tomb was empty. Apparently the other women made their way to the tomb and discovered the angel, and the angel told them that he is not here, he has risen just as he has said. And then the disciples arrive and they find the empty tomb. And now verse 10 tells us the disciples went back to their own homes. So here what we have in verse 11 is Mary, apparently alone again, not having had a conversation with the other women, arrives at the tomb, and here we find her weeping bitterly because she is distraught. She's not heard a message from the angel. Nothing has been relayed to her by the women who have encountered the angel. And so Mary is overwhelmed with grief and loss and is unable to comprehend that Jesus was not only killed and had witnessed this herself, 
But now she is gone. Or excuse me, now he is gone. The tomb is empty. I've been around some people that have lost some loved ones. I've conducted the funeral services, and several days later there is still an overwhelming sense of grief and sorrow. Isn't that right? You don't just turn it off. It doesn't just disappear. And so here is Mary who loved Jesus so deeply and who had experienced His love to her so deeply, overwhelmed with grief, outside of the tomb, still weeping profusely. Now what I find to be very interesting about this account is simply this. Mary is not a prominent figure in any of the Gospel accounts. In fact, before the crucifixion, she appears only in Luke, and she only appears in a list of the names of women who were traveling with Jesus and the disciples. She was not a part of the inner circle. She was a part of the fringe group of followers. And yet, here she is, alone, outside of the tomb, continuing to mourn and to weep. That doesn't mean that the others had gotten over it. It doesn't mean that the others were calloused in how they loved Jesus and in this sense of loss. It simply is a way of identifying this love that she had for Him and this devotion that she felt towards Him and the realization that not only was He dead, but He was now missing. It continues here that Mary is not only distraught, but she is completely unaware of what's going on around her, 11b and 12. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. Now, it's, it's assumed that in the tomb that Jesus was laid, there was a large stone bench, and this is where the body would have been laid. And here Mary looks in and sees two individuals, one at the feet and one at the head, who were sitting on this bench. And as she looks into the tomb, through eyes that are blurry with tears, she sees these two figures and does not recognize who they are, or the fact that they are dressed in white and their garments are dazzling, she only sees these two figures. And as we would go back and look at the accounts in Mark and Luke, we recognize that they have announced who they are, that they are angels. They have announced that He has risen just as He has said. But Mary is totally unaware of who they are and they begin an inquiry of her. Verse 13a. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Of course the angels knew what was going on. They knew why she was weeping. They knew that she was overwhelmed with grief and sorrow. And so the question that they asked wasn't designed to get information, but it was a way of gently rebuking her for her unnecessary weeping, because just as the angels had already pronounced, he is alive just as he said he would be. The disciples and the other women, just like Mary, had totally forgotten what Jesus had said about his death 
and about his resurrection. Now, they know for a fact what she does not yet know, and her faith in Jesus and what he has said about his resurrection was very, very weak. They had all forgotten what Jesus had said about his dying and about his being raised from the dead. And after the inquiry, she responds to them as we look at the latter half of verse 13. She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Mary doesn't give any consideration about the request as to why they're asking her about the weeping, nor does it dawn on her that this is a question that is designed to challenge where she is in her emotional state. But Mary, like the others, believes that Jesus is dead and now somehow his body is missing and she can't begin to understand how that could possibly happen or what has come to Jesus. The only logical, rational explanation that Mary can conjure up in her mind is that he was dead and two days later he's not here. I can't even begin to think about the possibility that he might be alive. All I know is what I can see and what I have seen, and this completely overrides my faith in what Jesus has said. Now, does that sound familiar? Does this not sound like a snapshot of our own individual lives? What we see, what we have seen, has a tendency to overwhelm what God has said? Think about that. We look at our circumstances as such an insurmountable, unmovable reality that we forget that we are the sons and daughters of the God who created the world and the universe that we live in. This same God who has turned water into wine, who has multiplied the fish and the loaves, who has called the blind to see and the lame to walk and the dead to be brought back to life, has the ability, maybe not to change our circumstances, but most certainly to strengthen us to not just endure in our circumstances, to become conquering victors in the midst of our circumstances. But because our eyes are so weak in faith, we often forget what God has said and become overwhelmed by what we literally and physically see in the moment. Now, as Jesus had talked about his death, and as much as that didn't make sense to them, he also talked about his resurrection, and they weren't thinking about that at all, even though just a few weeks earlier, perhaps a couple of months, they saw with their own eyes Lazarus come out of his tomb after being dead for four days, still wrapped in the linen cloths that were a part of his grave clothing. They had forgotten all of that. Everything that they had seen, all the miracles that they themselves had experienced, all the teaching that they had themselves listened to, all of that was washed away by what they could and couldn't see. And this is exactly where Mary is. She sees, but she doesn't really see. Verse 14, When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, and did not know that it was Jesus. Now it's quite likely that after Mary answered this gentle rebuke by the angels, 
that they made some kind of a gesture, some kind of emotion that prompted Mary to look away from them and to look outside. Perhaps they did a that or a that or a that. They did something that caused Mary to turn from them and to turn in the direction of whatever it is they, that, that they excuse me that they have just gestured towards towards and now she sees another figure but she isn't able to recognize with any clarity exactly who this person is she sees the figure but she doesn't recognize it as being Jesus because that's not what she expects her last picture of Jesus and his lifeless body being removed from the from the cross and being taken away and laid into the tomb and then anointed for burial and the stone rolled away. That was the lasting picture that she had of Jesus. She knew he was dead. She saw the lifeless body and she's looking at him now and yet she still does not recognize who he is. In this very fragile emotional state, Jesus now confronts her. He says in the beginning part of verse 15, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? He repeats what the angels have said to Mary specifically, and it is in some way an expansion of what the angels have said to the other women. Why do you seek the living amongst the dead? Whom are you seeking? Why are you weeping? He asks her the same question. And again, this is a subtle rebuke for her lack of faith in what it is, she has, what it is he has said. And although she is looking at him, she does not recognize that this is in fact the Lord that she has come to see and the one that she is mourning over. Mary presupposes as she looks at this figure just outside of the tomb. Verse 15b, Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. This is an interesting post-edit commentary that John makes, most likely from a personal conversation that, that she had with John, What do you mean you talked to Jesus? I saw him and I didn't recognize who he was. I thought he was the gardener. Most likely, this is exactly what Mary had told John. And so John adds that as an editorial comment, if you will, as he recounts the story of Jesus' appearance to Mary. So Mary doesn't even recognize the voice of Jesus as he is standing there and as he speaks to her, she's still focused on the dead Jesus, and on the one she expects to have found in this tomb. She assumes this person is perhaps the gardener, the caretaker of the area of of the land that Joseph of Arimathea owns, and the one who is the rightful owner of the tomb now given to Jesus. So since she's still convinced that Jesus is dead and his body is missing, all she wants to do is to continue to provide Burial maintenance. This is one of the affronts that we ought to have to a crucifix. Why? Because Jesus isn't still on the cross. Jesus is 
was put into the tomb and the tomb is empty, indicating his victory and his conquering of death and the grave. We don't need to continue to memorialize the dead Jesus because we celebrate the risen Lord who has provided for us the victory over the, over the grave and over death. So as she is still contemplating this unknown individual, and as she's hearing these words, Jesus then calls her, and he calls her by name. He says to her, Mary. As soon as she hears Jesus call her name, Mary immediately recognizes. Verse 16b, she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Whether it was the tears that blurred her eyes or the expectations that Jesus was in fact not going to be alive, Mary's inability to recognize the figure that she saw and the voice that she heard was immediately removed as soon as Jesus called her by name. There must have been something about the way Jesus spoke her name that enabled Mary to know that this was none other than Jesus. Although she wasn't a prominent figure in the Gospel accounts, it doesn't mean that she was unknown to Jesus. I would imagine that she and countless of other followers would have had many a conversation with Jesus that were not recorded for us in the Gospels, but as soon as she heard her name spoken by Jesus, she knew exactly who it was. John 10.3 says, I'm sorry, I got the wrong verse in there. John 10.3 says, To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear the voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. You know, when Jesus calls our name, he speaks to us specifically and directly. Not, hey, you guys. Not, hey, all you in Grace Fellowship. But he calls your name. He calls you by your own very name because He knows you. And it ought to be that when Jesus speaks our name, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we ought to recognize that that is the voice of my Lord. That is not the enemy. That is not worldly wisdom or advice. But this is the name of the One who loves me and has given Himself up for me. So as soon as Mary hears the voice, she is overjoyed that here is Jesus standing in front of her. Verse 17a, Jesus said to her, excuse me, Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Mary is filled with inexpressible joy now that she knows that Jesus isn't dead and he isn't missing. He is Alive. John doesn't record this, but Mary must have leapt for him and wrapped her arms around his legs or perhaps grasped his feet in a position of worship. But she has now grabbed a hold of him and is clinging to him. She's lost him once and she doesn't want to lose him again. Now when Jesus says, stop clinging to me, the Old King James Version says, touch me not. And it indicates 
on the surface of what Jesus is saying is don't touch me. But the actual interpretation of the verb doesn't mean don't touch me. What it means is don't cling to me. Don't hold fast to me. And the reason is found in Jesus' subsequent statement. He says, I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now, there's great debate about what this means. First and foremost, John is not attempting in these few words mixed in with this response between Mary and Jesus. He is not creating a theology of the ascension. So that's not what this is about. He's not trying to create a doctrine about the ascension of Christ. But there is great debate about what this exactly means. Some think that it refers to Jesus having not yet ascended to the Father in immediacy. Meaning that he has not yet ascended to the Father at all. That's a possibility. Some think that it refers to his permanent ascension, meaning his eventual ascension into heaven once and for all until he comes back at the second advent. This ascension is recorded in Acts chapter 1. We also know that Jesus appeared at least ten times over forty days, so we know that it can't be his permanent ascension, and it's possible that it means this um, this immediate temporary ascension. But there is a third meaning that some believe that it is a metaphor, meaning that Mary and others should relate to Jesus in his spiritual glorified state, as opposed to the patterns that were established in his physical pre-resurrection relationship. In other words, the ascension refers to a state of being rather than a state of doing. So if we understand this to mean that Jesus is not in his final state of ascension, where he's not going to come back and assume a bodily form, it eliminates the idea that Jesus has not yet gone to the Father and ascended. He's not talking about doing ascension. He's talking about his spiritual state of being. This third view is seen as the best way to harmonize the entirety of John's usage of ascended or the word ascension throughout throughout his gospel as a whole, And it also harmonizes the ongoing appearances that we find recorded in the other Gospels and then also in the book of Acts. So it is quite possible that Jesus did in fact ascend into heaven immediately after his resurrection in a new glorified state and was joined back with the Father and the heavenly beings in the heavenly places but he was going to continue to come back and make appearances in this glorified bodily state, even though his final and ultimate ascension had not yet taken place. Now, if Jesus was going to come back 
and make appearances on at least ten different occasions, and he was never, ever, ever going to ascend into heaven, then where did he go over those 40 days? How do we harmonize the fact that Jesus seemed to appear out of nowhere and actually walked through closed doors? So I think the best way to understand this, even though John is not trying to write a doctrine of the ascension, is that Jesus probably ascended into heaven on a very temporary basis to be reunited with the Father and the, and the heavenly beings and came back temporarily to make the appearances that are recorded in the Gospel accounts. His physical body was now in its glorified state. It would no longer be bound by physical limitations, which is why he could appear out of nowhere and why he could walk through a closed door. But then after these appearances served their purpose, he would then go back into the heavenlies and be reunited with the Father. He would come back again for the final time and make a visible eyes-to-be-seen ascension where he would be raised back into the heavens on a cloud, and all who were gathered would be able to see that. He wouldn't just poof and disappear and they wonder where he went. They saw where he went. So it's more than likely that this ascension means that it is not a permanent ascension. He's not yet ascended to the Father permanently. Stop clinging to me like you did when I had my physical pre-resurrection experience with you because I am going to go away and you are going to see that. But remember, I am going to send the helper to you and it's better for you if I go than if I stay. While we wrestle with that reality, it's better for Jesus to go than it is to stay, we have to remember that because of Jesus' pre-resurrection physical state, he was bound to the area of Palestine unless he got on a boat and sailed long distances and made physical appearances in other places, right? But in the coming of the Holy Spirit, Jesus' physical presence was no longer necessary. So don't grasp a hold of, don't be dependent upon my physical presence, but be prepared for what is coming spiritually. And he will talk more about that in the days ahead. So Jesus instructs in verse 17b, after Mary has recognized who he is, and after she has fallen at his feet and cling to him, he says, go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. The instruction is very, very simple. Go and tell the others what you have seen and heard. Now, it's interesting to me to note that this is the first time that Jesus calls the disciples his brethren. They were servants. They were friends. Sometimes there was the analogy of slaves. But here, Jesus calls them brethren. This indicates a new kind of relationship between the followers of Christ and Christ Himself. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection and exaltation, His disciples come to share in His Sonship to the Father. Think about that. Why are we called the sons and daughters of the Most High God? Well, it is through our union with Christ, through the cross, By Jesus' own declaration, 
to go and tell my brethren that I have ascended to the Father. You see, it is through the atonement that we don't relate to a deity, we don't relate to a supernatural power, but we relate to God the Father and we understand Him to be our Father and we to be His sons and daughters and Jesus to be both our Lord and our brother. It is an entirely new relationship. This makes so much sense when you think about what Jesus has said when He was preparing His disciples for His imminent departure. I am going to go and prepare a place for you in My Father's house or what? Many dwelling places. And you're going to come and live with Me in My Father's house just like a brother or a sister would. It is an incredibly new relationship that is being established here that we are now the brothers and the sisters of Jesus, the Son of God. So, Jesus gives to her this very simple and this very basic instruction to go and tell the others what you have seen and heard. And of course, Mary obeys. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that He had said these things to her. She does in fact stop clinging to the feet of Jesus. Although there's no way for her to completely understand the significance of what Jesus has told her about in His ascension. She is overwhelmed with joy, inexpressible, I think in a way that is exponentially greater than the sorrow that she was just expressing as she has now seen and encountered the living and the risen Christ. And so she does what she's told. She goes back and reports all that the Lord has told her, and as we look at what will come in the, day, in the passage ahead, is that Jesus is not done with his appearance. He's going to now appear to the disciples. What I find to be so intriguing about this is that although Mary Magdalene was not a prominent figure in the Gospel accounts, for reasons that we could never understand or explain, we can only speculate on them, for whatever reason, Jesus chose to appear to Mary first. He didn't have to do that. He could have left her there weeping. He could have waited until she made her way back and found out on her own. He could have gone to James and Peter and John, the inner circle of the, of the twelve. But he didn't do that. He appeared to her. And I think the significance is found in this. Not that she was a woman. Not that there was some kind of underlying message. But this simply this. As great as Jesus' love is for the creation that He is responsible for. It never ever diminishes the love He has for you and I individually. He loved Mary Magdalene even though she was not a prominent figure in the Gospel account, even though she would not carry out an apostolic ministry, He chose to appear to her first. What I hope you'll get out of that is that Jesus' love for you is just as significant as it is for the greatest of any of the apostles, for the greatest of any of the preachers our world has ever heard of or known. He loves you 
as much as He can love anyone. You are the Mary Magdalene that has never physically met the Lord as you are to think about the love that He has for you. Isn't that interesting to think about? Let's pray. Well, Father, we are so thankful for the truth and the fact that you are not dead and you're certainly not missing. You are alive and you reign and you rule at the right hand of the Father, that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And even though the multitude, the mass of our world rejects you, you are still Lord. Nothing will ever change that. Not the doubters, not our circumstances, not even our own weakness of faith will ever detract from the reality that you are the Lord. Father, how we thank you for this subtle and yet significant expression of love as you revealed yourself to Mary. I pray, Father, that we would envision ourselves in her place, knowing that you love us the same way, that you are concerned about us the same way, and that you can fill our hearts with joy inexpressible in the same way, because you haven't changed. You're just as sufficient for us as you were for her. So God, I pray that we would be reminded of new things as we think about who you are and what you've done, as we remind ourselves of the victory through the resurrection and the familiarity of that story. I pray that you would continue to teach us that it's not global, it's still very individual. Just as we are individually responsible for putting you there, you individually have covered our sin and loved us completely and perfectly. For this, we give you thanks. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing. Let's worship him.